welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast, Division II National Champion North Greenville head coach Landon Powell. Coach Powell was honored with the ABCA A-Tech Coach of the Year Award. Coach Powell and the North Greenville program brought home their first national championship this year. The year before Coach Powell took over the program, they were 8-35. North Greenville now has four regional appearances in a row. North Greenville had a complete squad this year with a 331 batting average, a 359 ERA, and they were a handful for their opponents, stealing 145 bases and scoring almost 10 runs per game. Coach Powell had a tremendous playing career as a four-year starter at South Carolina and as a journeyman catcher in the big leagues. In this episode, we discuss how he's built the program, player development, how he's blending his faith into the program, and his work with donors on the Diamond Charity. Let's welcome Coach Powell to the podcast. Congrats on the year. Thank you. I you and it. I... It's been a fun time. I, I finished at Evansville right before you started, but my brother coached at Evansville and... I was coaching summer ball around that time, but he, your name was one of the names he gave me when I was trying to put teams together. And then Trey actually played in the Cape when I was coaching up there. So oh, cool. I, was try- I think he was with Chatham, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't know. That sounds about right. He's yeah. not in the office today. I would ask him. But yeah. uh, yep. I never got to play. I was supposed to play for You're YD. You were USA, weren't you? Yeah, I, play- I made yeah. Team USA that summer. So I was supposed to be in YD, and then I went to Team USA instead. Yeah. Yeah, because I was trying to think. I was like, I don't think Landon was up there. And then I was like, I'm pretty sure you're a USA guy. So, Yeah, that was my my one summer. It was either go to the Cape or USA. And I went yeah. to trials. I didn't know for sure if I'd make it, and I did. And that was an awesome summer, though. I had a good time. Yeah, We, uh, we were in the regional. I coached at James Madison. We were in the South Carolina regional. That would have been 02, I think is yeah. what it was. It was uh, North Carolina and Virginia Commonwealth. That was yep. like the highest yep. rank. That was the year we beat. Yeah, we beat UNC, and then we beat uh, we beat Miami in the Super to go to Omaha that year. Yeah, we couldn't get Chris Ionetta out. So who was? Yeah, Ionetta. So who? Uh, 
Was uh, Eddie Kim on that team? Yeah, James Eddie, Dan Meyer was a first rounder. Dan Meyer got up to the yep. big leagues with athletics yep. and Eddie. Yeah, Kim. oh yeah, I played yeah. with Dan a ton. I played yeah. with Dan in Double A and Triple A, and then a little bit in the big leagues. Here with Landon Powell, North Greenville, Division II national champs, uh, ABCA, ATEC, uh, Division II coach of the year, but had a great college career at South Carolina. Uh, journeyman catcher, I, would you describe yourself as a journeyman catcher in the big leagues? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a backup most of my career, but yeah, I played for the A's, Astros, and Mets, so um, was never a major league all-star or anything, Not maybe not a household name, but I did get to spend some years up there and met a lot of guys and had some good experiences, so um it was a it was a very fun season of life have you gotten a chance to catch your breath at all from the season yeah it's been good um uh, the last week or so I went to the lake with, with family and took some downtime so I've been back in the office this week doing stuff but uh um, it's been great it's been a really fun several weeks um you know we've had a lot of uh, local television and radio and things here locally that um, that was a big deal in the state of South Carolina because um a lot of we were the only college baseball team really playing and going far so um it was it's been a good thing here locally in the state so it's been a lot of fun it was a fun season um obviously when you are the last team standing and you know you get to hold that trophy up at the last game of the year it makes every all the work and time and effort worth it and uh and that's kind of how we all feel right now so we're we're still on cloud nine a little bit how gratifying is it when you show up the program's not in great shape I mean, I had eight wins the year before. How gratifying is it to do in eight years? Yeah, it, it's been a complete turnaround, complete overhaul. You know, um, this this program was definitely a, a bottom dweller, I think you could say, when I got hired. Um, like you said, the year before I got here, they won eight games. They they were two and eighteen in the conference. Um, you know, they had a bad facility. It was a, it was a below average high school facility, chain link backstop had no. No bleachers, no bathrooms, no concession stand. It was nothing here. Um, you know, one batting cage that was not in great shape. Um, one bullpen mound. Um, it, it's the, the visiting bullpen was even worse. It was kind of embarrassing, to be honest. So um, it's been a complete overhaul. And, uh, you know, one of those years, so eight years, one of those years was COVID. So we didn't really get to compete, you know, fully that year. And we were having a good year when COVID canceled the season. But, and to really turn this thing around and go from eight wins to winning the national championship in uh, in seven years essentially has been pretty cool. So uh, I'm proud of the work we've done. I'm grateful to the players and the coaches that have dedicated all their time and energy to this program. Um, this this school's a you know I would say of all the schools that have been winning national championships the last 20 years, this school is a unique one because it's so small. It's a private Christian school. Um, they've never been known for athletics here. I mean, we won the uh, we won the conference championship in 2015, uh, my first year here, and that was the first conference championship in school history in any sport. Um, and so, to win the national championship seven years later, um, it's pretty cool. So, very very proud and, and grateful that what we've done. How'd you get it turned that quick? Because I saw that because you go eight wins and then first year you, you win a conference championship and you go play in the regionals. How did you get it turned that quick? Um. Well, the biggest thing is we just changed the culture. You know, I was coming straight from professional baseball and, you know, we brought a lot of the things from pro my, my assistant coach, John Kutlangas, who also played in the major leagues with the Reds. Um, we were college teammates at South Carolina. We both were just coming straight out of college, out of professional baseball, coming to the college level. He had spent one year at Charleston Southern university as a pitching coach. And I'd spent a year at Furman university as a pitching coach. So we had dipped our toes in the water as division one coaches 
saw some brokenness in college baseball, recognized some things that we felt like could be done differently. And by no means were we like, you know, trendsetters or groundbreaking guys, but we, we definitely had some different ideas that we wanted to try to bring to the college level and treat our team more like a minor league team, be more developmental, uh, be more intentional with relationships and, and not be so authoritative like a lot of old school college coaches where they put their thumb on you a little bit. We wanted to be uh, more of a, a, a new style coach, more of a professional coach that is there to assist you and come alongside you and help you. So we brought a lot of that stuff to the college level. Um, immediately we, we convinced our team that they were better than they were. And we, you know, convinced them that if you're ever going to go out and play and compete, like you better expect to win. Like wh why would you ever toe the line to play a game, not expect to win? And that was a mentality here that they didn't have. I mean, they, you know, they were just happy to be on a college team and to be able to tell their friends, yeah, I play college baseball or to take that, that photo in their uniform and put on Instagram. And very quickly, we, we made sure they understood that is not what we're about. Like if you're going to be on this team, it's because you expect to win and we're not going to settle for anything less. Um, we started the season two and seven and it was like, everyone was freaking out. They thought that this was going to go poorly. And we just decided to stick to our guns. Just, just relax. Don't freak out over failure. Failure is part of the game. That's one of those things we kind of brought with us from professional baseball. Like, guys, it's going to be okay. Like, you're going to lose some games. You're going to make some errors. You're going to strike out with the bases loaded once in a while. The, the sooner you realize that that's part of the game, the better you're going to, you know, overcome that adversity. The, the easier it is going to, going to be for you to move past that and then have success next time. So we just kept, you know, preaching our environment and our culture and, um, you know, we compete every day. That was another thing I think our coaches did is, I mean, it doesn't matter if we're sitting in the, in the office, you know, um, play, you know, whatever, like shooting an airsoft gun, like we'll make targets and shoot targets or like, we'll, you know, whatever it is we're doing, like we're competing at all walks of life that we're doing. And once we instilled that mentality around our locker room that like, we're just, we love to compete. Doesn't matter if we're playing ping pong or shooting horse or on a baseball field in the middle of the game, you want to win at everything you're doing. And um, our players started to kind of, I think, get that from our coaches. And, uh, you know, we compete every day in practice. We'd always have, you know, like a, a bunt game at the end of practice or, a, you know, picking up balls in the cage, like, you know, see how many you can make in the bucket, 10 shots. Just that, that competitive atmosphere was something that I think really helped change our program. And, um, you know, we, we won 29 or 30 games that first year, won the conference championship, went to a regional. Then the next year we won 38 games. So it happened quite, pretty quickly. And then, uh, you know, we've won five conference championships in the last seven years, which is seven years we've been here. We've won five conference championships. We've been to a regional five times. Um, we've hosted it four times, um, four in a row. And uh, and then this year we were finally able to break the door down and, and go to carry. And then we're fortunate enough to win it once we got there. So it's definitely happened quickly, but it's it hasn't been easy. But it's uh, it's been fulfilling. It's been fun. I can promise you that. I think that's a common theme with competitors is they know competition is fun where somebody that maybe doesn't understand competition where they, they kind of get bristled up about it, where, where you make competition fun and that kind of carries over into that next thing for guys that, okay, this is a game and we're going to go out and get after it, but it, it, you need to have fun with doing it. Yeah. I mean, we don't want our guys to feel like this is a job, you know, and, and sometimes in professional baseball, that's something I learned is that, you know, um, it's it's hard to have as much fun sometimes because you're paying your bills you know so if you go for four with the hat trick you know it's like man 
I better to stop doing this or I'm not going to be able to like buy diapers for my baby. You know, like this is my livelihood. And that pitcher is trying to take food off my table and I got to figure out how to compete and win. So there's a little more stress involved at that level. But, you know, come back to college and you're coaching these guys. It's like, listen, you know, if you go for four or four strikeouts today, your mom's still going to love you, you know, and your science teacher's not going to know any difference. So like we can relax and have a little more fun at this level. And it needs to be fun. It doesn't need to be a job. This doesn't need to be a chore. Um, I want my players to be excited to come to this field every day. This needs to be a leisure activity that they want to compete and be excellent at, but they need to be excited to do it. And, um, and I think we, we were able, fortunately, to build that environment where our players really get excited to come to the field. They have fun here. And I think that's just part of our loose atmosphere as young coaches that had just retired from playing in the big leagues. Like, we knew how to have fun. That's one thing you, you learn at the professional level. You're there 200 days a year or more, 12 hours a day. You better figure out how to make it fun or you'll never survive at that level. And, um, you know, so for, for me, like, I used to get to the field early and play cards or play cribbage or dominoes you know, before I would go do my scouting work or before I would go hit in the cage or catch a bullpen. So there's a lot of fun that we would um, kind of sprinkle in throughout our day as a pro baseball player. And we, we brought a lot of that same stuff to the college level. Seems like you have common theme with your assistants, either guys that played with you at South Carolina or, or guys that played for you at North Greenville. Obviously that's by design, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a big believer in kind of having a a close-knit circle of trust with the guys. And so I I like to have coaches around me that I I know have my back and that I have theirs. And, um, you know, that's that's a big part of that family. You know, um, all great families in the world probably start with, you know, great leadership, whether it's a a husband and wife or whatever. But that husband and wife's relationship has to be really, really good um, for them to have a successful family. And, and that's how, kind of how I look at the coaching staff. You know, we, we are – our coaching staff has to be married and we have to be, um, you know, in this together and have each other's back. And, and if so, then, then we can have a successful family. And that locker room is our family. So um, I, I've hired coaches that I've played with, that I've had good relationships with. I've hired coaches that I coached, that they were my players. So um, I know that there's a loyalty piece to these guys. And, um, and when we sit in here – and have discussions about our program, I know that those guys are all going to have their best intentions at, at heart, but also they're going to have my best intentions and my back as the head coach at heart. So um, that, that's that been an important piece to me, yeah, for sure. And being in successful programs, you know how to win too, and that's part of it also. Yeah, I think, um, you, you know, I've been a part of a lot of winning programs from high school all the way through college to professional baseball, and I just expect to win. That's, that's part of – how I've been raised that um, I was never okay with losing to me losing was never um, acceptable um, you know you you lose with with uh, class and you you know you you be a good sport and you're you're grateful for the competition but you can't be okay with losing you have to want to win and um, you know I've never had much fun losing I can promise you that and uh, winning although tough winning is fun all the time and uh so that's the kind of mentality i've tried to instill here i mean was there one strength on your team it looked like really balanced really good offense really good on the mound played solid defense was there one strength or was it just all three phases of the game where you guys were good um i would say it's kind of a, a tale of two seasons a little bit um early in the year we were more of an offensive driven team 
um, we were returning a ton of offense from last year. Um, our pitching last year was not as strong. We lost all four starting pitchers from last year's team. So going into this spring, we were a little bit unsure about pitching. We knew our offense was really good. We were returning a ton of great offensive players, um, but we were a little uncertain about pitching. I, I would have told if you would have talked to me back in January, I would have said, man, we're going to be good. I don't know if we can win at all. I just don't know if we have the arms, but that's, why baseball is crazy because as the season went on, we just had some guys step up and came out of nowhere that did some awesome things that we wouldn't have expected. I mean, Noah Takis um, led division two this year in ERA batting average against whip um, runs per nine. And I think hits per nine um, five statistical categories. He led the country in, he threw four innings for us last year. And, and I would have told you in January that he would have probably been in line to maybe throw 15 innings this year is maybe the bullpen kind of guy, but he ended up being a bona fide stud, an ace. Um, we had another guy, Reese Fields, who made conference pitcher of the year and was College World Series MVP. You know, last year he was a freshman that started some midweek games. You know, might have thrown 30 innings last year. So this, and he had a 12 ERA in the fall during our fall scrimmages. So not exactly how I thought his year was going to go, and he had a tremendous year. So. We had some guys step up. We also had a junior college guy named Nate Roof, um, who at his JUCO last year had like a six ERA and, um, you know, gave up more hits than he threw innings. So we knew he had great stuff. He had come here out of high school as a freshman, had some academic issues, had to leave, go to a JUCO. And we brought him back only because of that relationship from his freshman year, how much we liked him and that we recruited him out of high school, not necessarily because of his success as JUCO because he didn't really have much success. But then he came in this year, and he was our best bullpen arm the last month of the season. I mean, he was dominant. He threw three shutout innings in the national championship game. So uh, pitching was, if I could say, our strength of our team. Our offense was great. It has been for a couple of years. Um, we run the bases well. We steal a lot of bags. We're very aggressive. We hit some homers. We, we try to walk more than we strike out. Um, defensively, we're a, a solid team. We're not an elite defensive team, but we're a solid team. But the X factor this year, for sure, was our pitching. Um, we had a couple starters step up and have great years. And then we had three or four bullpen guys that had been dependable and, and trustworthy and they had great years. And when you go back and look at like what we did and carry, um, we were pretty pitching dominant there. I mean, what improved for those guys? You got a guy throw four innings last year. What improved for those guys allow them to go out and dominate this year? So one thing that for him specifically um, he he ended he incorporated some timing things into his delivery, so the Johnny Cueto style. So he started doing some pauses in his windup. Um, he started you know changing his delivery. He he got three or four different types of deliveries that he got really comfortable with, and he could slow you down and speed you up. Um, he's a 86, 87 righty with a slider and a changeup. I mean, he's not a dominant. He doesn't have dominant stuff. He's not a draft guy, but he's very accurate. He's a bulldog. He's super smart. And when he added those timing mechanisms into his delivery, he just started like playing video games with those guys and they just couldn't hit him. His numbers were crazy this year. Um, so that's one thing that was huge for him. But I'll say the other thing that really helped him is this year we started shifting. Um, it's something that we didn't do as much in the past. We would do it here and there only with like a power lefty that we knew was going to be a shift guy. But this year we shifted almost every hitter. Um, we would get the data, um, we'd do our spray charts and, and, and scouting reports, and then we'd go and I mean, we'd, we'd go right-handed hitters. We'd move the second base on the second baseman on the left side of the bag. 
um, we were shifting all over the field. And that um, early in the year, we wanted to see if this was going to work or not, if we were crazy for doing this or if this was going to be beneficial to us. So we started keeping a differential, basically, like how many hits taken away versus hits given. And so, like, if they hit a ground ball right to the, where the second baseman should have been, but he was over on the left side of the bag, we would count that as a, you know, a, a plus hit column. You know, if a guy hit a missile ground ball right up the middle that normally would have been a hit, but we happen to have our second baseman playing there, that would be a minus one. So we, we kept stats on that. And, like, a month into our season, um, we were, like, plus 70 as far as hits taken away overall it was crazy so we were like all right well this is working we're going to keep doing it and we shifted all year you go look at our batting average against it was like two i don't know 218 on the season batting average against and a lot of that has to do with the shift we took a lot of hits away this year i was going to ask you you had 145 stolen bases that was not part of your game as a player you know how does that evolution take place for you? Because obviously that's something you're not comfortable with doing as a player, but you're okay with letting your guys go out and do that as players. So for me, as I was a catcher, and like you said, I wasn't fast. I, I did have one stolen base in the major league. It was luck. <laughs> um, it was actually a missed sign, to be, to be honest with you. But I did steal a base in the big league, so I have that. Uh, I can always brag to some people that I did get one. But no, I was not. I was very slow, and I wasn't a base stealer. But what I'll tell you is. As a catcher, um, I kind of I kind of thought of it like uh, like this: an offensive coordinator in football. To be a great offensive coordinator, you actually need to know a lot about defense. You have to understand how the defense works, how they move, and, and that helps you create plays to defeat them. And vice versa, a great defensive coordinator in football needs to understand offense really, really well. So, for me as a catcher in professional baseball, I wanted to be a great catch and throw guy to shut down the running game. So I spent a lot of time learning about base stealing, learning the running game. I studied from – I mean, I played for the A's, so I, I spent a lot of time talking to Ricky Henderson, picking his brain. And then Coco Crisp was on my team in the majors for a couple of years. Coco and I became good buddies, and I would pick his brain all the time and, and, and figure out, like, what he did, how was he getting his lead, what count was he looking for, you know, what things was he um, keying off on the pitcher when he was trying to get his make his mind up on what he was doing. You know, Coco one year in Oakland, I think he only got thrown out once the entire season. He had the highest uh, safe percentage in the big leagues that year. Um, so although I wasn't a base dealer, I actually educated myself a ton about base running. And so when I got here to North Greenville, that was something I wanted to implement. I knew that um, when I was a catcher and we played against teams that were very aggressive on the base paths, it was frustrating to play those teams. Yes, it, they always made you feel uncomfortable. And like a couple of organizations I can tell you in the minor leagues that were like that were the the Angels and the Mariners, um, their minor league teams, they were really, really aggressive stealing bases. So I, I remember coming up against like uh, the Angels and they had uh, Sean Figgins, Eric Ibar, um, Howie Kendrick. I mean, those guys were run every time they got on. I mean, they if they got on base, they were going to steal. And it just created so much pressure on our defense. You know, it would change the way we would call games. We're picking over more. We're calling more fastballs. You know, we have to be more aware of that stuff. And I really liked that brand, and I realized how hard it was defensively to defend that brand of baseball. So when I got to college, that's one of the things I brought in. I said, man, if we can, you know, we can have some power guys, but also have a good number of speed guys in our lineup, we can be a versatile team. And it's not just stealing bags. I mean, it's, it's beating out infield singles. It's being able to lay down a bunt. It's uh, going first or third on singles. Um, it's taking that extra base when the outfielders are, you know, have their head down. Um, that's the brand of baseball we play here. We're very fast, very aggressive. 
and um, we push the envelope. And I'm okay with us make you know getting out sometimes. You know, to be aggressive, you have to be okay with getting thrown out. And yeah, um, but you only got one thrown out 15 we, times, so it's really like your percentage is through the roof on that. So it's really it's almost like a sure thing. So like it went, it wasn't like some you're, of those, you're running like, just a run. Like your percentage was was phenomenal. And some of those caught stealings that we did get thrown out this year were actually like dirt ball reads. So we're very, very aggressive on dirt ball reads. So we're in t- that's something we work on in practice. We're anticipating that curveball or change up in the dirt. And when our runner reads that downward angle, he's trying to take off before the ball even bounces. And I know as a catcher, that's such a hard thing to defend. For me to block a ball, get up quickly, pick it up, and make a good throw on the money to second, like that's a really hard play for a catcher to make. And you're just not going to throw many guys out doing it. So that's something we work on a lot. Now, that that changes the numbers because when you do a dirt ball read, you don't get a stolen base for that. That's a wild pitch. But when you get thrown out, it counts as a called stealing. Yeah. So our, our uh, called stealing percent actually probably would be even better. But, um, you know, also I think being a catcher for myself, um, I knew, you know, I controlled the running game my whole pro career, calling pitches, picking over, pitch outs, inside moves, whatever. So I kind of know – what to look for, what times in the game that the other teams maybe not expecting us to go, you know, what counts are probably going to be a breaking ball count or how they're trying to work a hitter. So I make my decisions of when I give steal signs based on all of those. Like we don't do green lights. I give the steal sign and, and I've kind of got it down to a science where I feel like there's a, we can be very, very high percentage with that. But um, yeah, I think stolen bases, you can tell from our stats that we, that we have speed, but what you don't see in the stats is, how many times we went first to third on singles and how many times we, we tagged up from first on a fly ball to the outfield and got in the score position at second. So we're just a very aggressive offensive team on the base paths. When you're working ball and dirt in practice, is that off inner squad stuff or is that breaking things down with the coach throwing to catchers? How are you guys doing ball and dirt reads? So we do it several different ways and we'll do it um, like in the skill work phase early in the fall where we're setting up a machine. And what we do is we, we put a couple different machines on the field. Well, I could do it with one machine if I want, but we'll sometimes use two machines. And we put like a huge 10 by 10 screen yep. in between the machine and first base and we'll hang like a tarp or something over it. All right. So that the bat, the runner can't see the ball being put into the machine. So they don't know if this ball is getting ready to be a strike or in the dirt. They're taking their secondary lead and they're reading the pitch. So we're, we're really having them focus on the ball flight. Yes. You know, from the pitcher's release to the catcher, that's all I want them to focus on is that ball flight. And we just do tons of reps like that early in the, in the fall. And then when we start scrimmages, you know, we're, I'm giving our dirt ball – I have a sign that's that's for dirt ball, like, hey, be aggressive on dirt ball or be cautious on dirt ball. It's one or the other. And, um, you know, in the fall, we're giving a lot of aggressive on dirt balls. Like, hey, I want you going. And, and if you get thrown out, that's on me. And I tell my guys that, like, if I ever give you a steel sign or a dirt ball read, I want you to feel completely free to go – and if you get thrown out, don't feel like you're going to be in trouble. If you get thrown out, it's it's my fault. I give you the sign. I'm going to take ownership of that. So I want my runners to have the the guts of a robber. Like I want them to be fearless out there. And and that's when you learn what you can do and how far you can go. And um, so yeah, we those are th- like those little small developmental things we work on all throughout the fall, and um, it benefits us in the spring for sure. Did you face any adversity? I mean, you didn't lose one, two in a row all year. I mean, was there any adversity? I know you said you're having to get your pitching figured out, but you were still rolling. So did you face any adversity at all? Yeah, so the adversity early in the year would have been that um, we lost a starting pitcher 
to eligibility issues at Christmas break, who we thought was going to be our, our number two starter. Um, we had another starting pitcher that had come in that we had some high hopes for that, that hurt his elbow. And we, it was an injury we think he had before he got here and had, had Tommy John in the fall. We had a closer that was a, a Juco All-American stud, 95-96 guy that we thought was going to be our closer. Um, he tore his Tommy John in his very first bullpen in the fall, very first one. So also very he might have been hurt before he got here. We're not sure. So pitching was like very much in question coming into January. And that was some adversity we had to overcome. So we did not have starters. We only had one starting pitcher, in my opinion, going into the spring. And that was Reese Fields, who ended up having a tremendous season, conference player, uh, pitcher of the year, and College World Series MVP. We knew he was going to be a starter. Those other two spots, we didn't have anybody like that we thought had earned that spot. So we used openers. Yeah, love all right. It. So we had we had some love good it. bullpen depth. So um, we would start openers on Saturday on our second and third game of the series all year long, um, and that opener would go you know 40, 50 pitches, and we'd bring in the next guy. And that's how we did it until the Takis, Noah Takis kid that I spoke about earlier, who led the country in a bunch of different stats, he kind of emerged as a guy that, you know, we were using an opener and then bringing him in second. And the opener we were using was named Jax Cash. He's a backup catcher and ended up being our starting catcher in the national championship game. Jax would pitch on Fridays, throw like 50 pitches, and then I'd bring somebody else in. And then I would catch Jax the third game of the series. Um but Takis, Noah Takis kid started coming in and relieving Jacks and throwing like the fourth, fifth, sixth innings in games. And then we would go to maybe our setup guy and closer. Well, Takis started doing so well that I got to the point where I was like, I just need to go ahead and start him. Like he's doing that well. But we, we have these openers all year. That was, that was one little piece of, I would call that adversity. We had to be creative. We had to figure out a way to still be successful, even though we didn't have like bona fide starters. Um, and then late in the year is when the adversity really kind of came. So, um, our All-American catcher, John Michael Fail, um, he was perfect game National Player of the Year last year. He's been a three-time All-American. Um, as a freshman, he hit 390 with 18 home runs. Last year as a sophomore, hit 420-something with 23 home runs. Led the country last year in home runs. So this year, junior, starting catcher, team captain. I mean, he's the best we got. And uh, we go to the conference tournament. Um, he's leading the conference in batting average home runs and RBIs. First at bat of the conference tournament, he hits a single, rounding first base, tears his knee up. Um, we thought it was season ending for sure, had to be helped off the field. They were telling us it was an ACL. Um, we didn't know. We, we didn't want to like just, just take their advice. We wanted to get an MRI and see. So he got an MRI, um, and it ended up being a – we call a bucket handle meniscus tear, which is a pretty severe meniscus injury. So he went in and had surgery and had it cleaned out. And they basically told him like it's six weeks. So um, we did not have him for the conference tournament, the regional or the super regional. And he was our three hole hitter and our starting catcher. He called every pitch. So I would, I would let him call games this year and he had been doing a phenomenal job. So you, you imagine losing a guy like that, like he's not a replaceable player. Um, not only our best offensive guy, but the backbone of our defense. Um, we were able to win the conference tournament, the regional and the super regional without him, which was a big, pretty big deal. And uh, and then 19 days after surgery, we go play and, and carry for the World Series. And I, he told me he wanted to play, so he was ready. Uh, the doctor cleared him. He had a big knee brace on. He had not had a single at-bat since that first at-bat in the conference tournament. So it had been over a month um, from his last at-bat to that point. 
19 days after surgery, over a month from the injury, and his very first at bat in the College World Series, he hit a home run. <laughs> wow. So it was crazy. Um, but that, that that was some big adversity. And then another guy that I talked about, um, Nate Roof, I mentioned him a minute ago, that threw three shutout innings in the national championship game. Well, he got mono during the conference tournament. So we did not have him in the conference tournament, regional or super regional either. So they were – I mean, that was our best offensive player and then arguably our best bullpen arm, and we didn't have either one of them all through the playoff run. But it was great to get them back for Kerry, I promise you. That, that made a big difference in Kerry having those guys back. That experience of, of being in the regionals, you know, three years – basically three years in a row up to that point, you know, kick out COVID, did it help these guys or does it matter? I mean, I think it helps from the fact that, you know, these guys are a little older. And uh, this year was a unique year that, you know, because of COVID, our left fielder, center fielder, both were fifth-year guys. Um, our first baseman was a fifth-year guy. Our second baseman was a fifth-year guy. So um, we had four guys in our lineup that were 22, 23-year-old, like, men. They've been doing this. They were, they were you know, they've had a lot of college reps. And, um, you know, that, that veteran, having that veteran presence and that experience definitely can help a team. And, uh, but we also had some young guys. I mean, our, our catcher, the two catchers that called for us after fail got hurt were one was a freshman, one was a sophomore. Um, we had a sophomore at third, um, a sophomore in, um, DH slash he, he was kind of a utility guy would play DH first base left field. So we had several young guys and then our pitching was very young. Reese Fields, who was the, the college World series MVP was a fresh, uh, was a sophomore, um, Noah Takis, who led the country in all those stats, was a junior. So we, we had some youth in there, too. But COVID just gave all these guys an extra year. So all the teams – it wasn't just ours. All the teams were old. Yeah. I mean, there was a team in our conference, Francis Marion University. All nine of their starters were fifth years. Like, all nine were either were either graduate guys or fifth-year seniors. Um, so it'll be interesting what they're going to do next year. I guess they're going to have a whole new lineup in there. But um, And they were a great offensive team. So it, COVID has uh, created that all around the country that – and large, just larger so roster more. sizes, too, because I was going to ask you. Yeah. It looked like you had about 43, but a mix of, of high school guys, two-year transfers, four-year transfer. It looked like pretty balanced roster all over the place with that. But is that COVID by design? Like, if COVID's not around, are you going to keep a 40-man roster? I mean, obviously, it helped this year yeah, I mean, with, with injuries. Easy. Injuries, I mean, obviously, it helped this year. Where, where you carry yeah, so forty is the number we usually want. You know, Division yeah. Two doesn't have roster limitations, yeah. so you can have as many as you want. Um, there's the team, and when I got hired here, it was, it was one of the first things that kind of blew my mind about Division Two baseball. I, I didn't know this, but when I got hired at North Greenville, there was a team in our conference that had 117 players oh, on their wow. roster. 117. It was crazy, but that's a money maker for that school. It's how yes. they increase their budgets and, and those kind of things. I'm not interested in that. I, I want. We have seven coaches. I want 40 players. I feel like that's a great ratio to give these players as much development and time that they that I can to each player. Um, so that's always been our number. Last year was the year that we had a big roster, 2021. Now you had all these seniors. We had nine seniors that were supposed to graduate in 2020. COVID canceled their season. All nine of them wanted to come back. They didn't want to end their career that way. So last year we had 50 players on our team. Um, and, but it was because of those nine seniors and that was awesome. I mean, it was a, it was a great season for them to be able to come back. We go all the way to the, the regionals and, and lose to Columbus state there in the end of the regional. But this year, uh, 43 ish guys, that's a good number for us. I think next year will be about the same. Um, that, I, that's a very easy number to handle. How are you setting roles for those guys? Or is it pretty fluid for, throughout the year? Um, so 
I'm very upfront in recruiting. I tell my, my recruits, and, and this is the same expectation once they get here, I'm playing the best nine guys. All right, it's the best nine guys. It doesn't matter who's on a full scholarship or on no scholarship or who somebody's daddy is. It don't matter. I'm playing the best nine guys. And that creates that competitive atmosphere also, that these guys are fighting every day in practice to earn spots and earn opportunities. Um, I'm very open and honest with my players. I communicate a lot. I think, shoot, sometimes I may over-communicate. You know, sometimes I'll tell guys the truth and shoot them straight. And my assistants will be like, man, you probably didn't have to tell them that. And I'm like, well, you know, I would rather him know, you know, because I think that that's going to help him make a decision one way or the other. And now the ball's in his court. He's going to make the right decision and roll his sleeves up and go to work. Or is he going to make the wrong decision and pout and feel bad for himself? And, you know, I, I like to see the cream rise to the top. So um, I, I try to be very honest with my players. I do tell them roles. I mean, so, like, when I have freshmen, I let them know, like, hey, you know, the senior at second base who was a All-American last year, he's probably going to play every day. But you need to be ready every game in the sixth or seventh inning. If we're up or down a bunch of runs, I'm going to get you in there and get you at bats. I'm going to get you reps. My goal for you as a young guy is to get you as many reps I can this year to develop you so that next year you can be the everyday guy. Um, another place that I think I'm very clear with roles is in the bullpen. Um, that was that comes from my pro career. I want my bullpen guys to know they have a role. I want them to have a feeling of when they may pitch so that they can prepare mentally and physically for those innings. And I try to communicate a lot during the game. I mean, I'll call down in the fourth inning and say, hey, um, you know, starter's going good, but have her long – be ready. It's one of our pitchers. Have him be ready for the fifth, maybe sixth inning. So have him go ahead and start tossing, stretching out. Um, I'll give him plenty of time to get ready, but it looks like we're going to reach a pitch count with our starter around the fifth. So he probably will have the sixth. I try to communicate, communicate that stuff innings in advance. And I think that helps our bullpen pitchers um, mentally be prepared and have more success. And I, that's something I learned being a backup catcher, sitting in the bullpen a lot in my big league career is how, how if you can communicate early and talk to these bullpen guys, how much more success they'll have. Have you talked about winning a national championship with them? I mean, it's something that obviously at North Greenville that wasn't even an option eight years ago, school-wise, program-wise. Was that something you talked about with them at all? My players? Yes. Yeah, so um, once we won a, a couple conference tournaments and, and went to some of these regionals, I mean, we so in 2018 – we lost in the regional and there was no super regional that year. So um, we lost in the regional to uh, maybe Columbus state again that year. They've always had our number. It seems like, um, and, and we were close. Like we, they were close games and we were in it and we were like, man, we, we could have won this. And then 2019, we won the regional. That was the first year of the super regionals. We played Catawba in the super regional and they beat us four to three in 10 innings, the first game and four to three in 14 innings, the second game. So that was just like we had our team was so good that year. We had four guys make first team All American. I mean, we were loaded. We had a great team. We were number one in the country for like eight weeks in the polls. So that was the year that like, hey, we could actually win a national championship, and then we didn't. So every year since then is kind of the expectation when we start fall practices. It's like, hey, you know, we we have some goals. We want to win the regular season in our conference. We want to win the conference tournament. We want to host a regional. We want to win the regional. We want to host the super regional. We want to win the super regional. We want to go to carry and be national champions. And we set all those different goals and we're trying to climb that ladder all year long, you know, one goal at a time. And, um, and this year we were able to, you know, I think that our players believed we could accomplish all those things, but as the season went on and we kept doing it, it's like, we just kept 
reaching every level and just, hey, let's go get the next one. Let's go get the next one. And and that's how it worked out. Do you feel like the hitters have finally caught up to the pitching a little bit? I think there was a little lull there offensively. I know you guys have always been good offensively. Do you feel like the hitters have caught up to the pitchers a little bit now? You mean specifically just with my team? Just with any just team, what you're seeing. Division two baseball. Just all of it. Um, so I think one thing that's changed here in the last couple of years, the so pitching – you know, several years ago, pitching could dominate at this level a little bit. If you got like a power five arm to transfer in or like a stud, you could dominate a little bit. Now you're just not seeing as many good pitchers um, get away from the big schools, right? So um, now with the D1 to D1 transfer rule, you know, the 96, 97 stud guys, just you're not going to see them at this level as much because they're going to, if they transfer away from a, a Clemson or a South Carolina, they're not going to go to North Greenville now. They're going to go to Coastal Carolina. And that's what um, it was back you know, when you were playing. I mean, there was no transfer. Correct. Back, yeah, the, so when you were playing, yeah. guys were going D1 to D1 back then. Yep, yeah, sure. And so when I got here, you couldn't do that. And they had to go to a D2. So you actually saw some, like, legit stud arms at this level that could dominate. And now you just don't see as many, in my opinion. So I do think the hitters have caught up a little bit because of that. You know, I think because of that. But – um, you know, I, I saw some great arms in carry. I'll tell you that. I mean, there, there was, there were some arms there that were really good and they may not be guys throwing 96, but they knew how to pitch. So that's what I love. I mean, the guy that led the country for us and all those stats I mentioned earlier, Noah Takis, he throws 86, 87, you know, like a, a place like a, a big power five school in the SEC or ACC wouldn't give him a chance. Um, but he would go there and do great. Like he would be very, very effective. Um, so I, I love that kind of seeing those pitchers that learn how to pitch. They're, they're not just velocity guys to throw. They actually know how to pitch. So, uh, but we had a great offensive team in this year here. We also had a great pitching staff. Um, our league was probably more offensive dominant. Um, not as the, the pitching in our league wasn't like incredible. We had a couple really good arms in our league, but I, I would say carry, I saw some dominant pitching. You know, handling your players, talking about roles, how much of that did you get from Ray Tanner at South Carolina? You know, I think I've gotten a lot of my coaching from Coach Tanner. Um, you know, I grew up in the dugout with him as a kid when he was at NC State. Um, and then I followed him to South Carolina and I played for him four years. He uh, he may not realize it, but I was always watching him, paying attention, taking notes in my, in my brain. And so a lot of the things I do as a coach, I think, are from him. Also, my dad was a coach and coached me a lot growing up. Um, and then I played, you know, I played for some great coaches, whether it's um, in, on Team USA in college or whether it was in professional baseball, the minor league guys and, and big league coaches I played for. Yeah, I, I always kind of knew I'd be a coach when I was finished playing one day. I kind of thought that was where my heart was. And so as my career went on as a player, I was always trying to, you know, take things from guys and, and, and learn and figure out why they made those decisions or why they handled that situation a certain way and, um, you know, felt like I could always owe that add, you know, kind of add those things to my tool belt and that would help me as a player. So, um, yeah, coach Tanner, um, one thing I valued about him was that he always went with his gut as a coach, you know, um, he wasn't, it wasn't always like the stats. He wouldn't just look at numbers and make his decision. Um, he would get people's advice, but at the end of the day, when the decision had to be made, he would go with his gut and he believed in his gut more than anybody. And I'm that way. You know, my assistant coaches will have some great ideas and they will convince me of, hey, you got to play this guy in this situation. Or, hey, so-and-so's really been struggling in the last couple of weeks. we got to get him out of the lineup. And, and, and sometimes I just feel something different. I'm like, you know what? 
yeah, he's one for his last 20. But I know that if he gets going, that our team will be better with him having success than with somebody else. And I stick with my gut, and those, that stuff hasn't served me wrong so far. Um, and so that's one, one of the areas I take a lot of, of, from Coach Tanner is I think I trust my gut. Um, another place is that he was – his consistency as a coach was incredible. I played for him for four years, and there was never a day that I was at the field that he wasn't. There was never a practice that he wasn't at. Um, he showed up every day, pants on, hat on, ready to work. And so I, I try to follow that. And just the consistency piece of baseball. Consistency is so important in this game. And getting out there every day and being on a, on a throwing program or a, a ground ball routine program or a T-work routine program in the cage, the consistency piece of baseball is so important. And that's something Coach Tanner was really good at. You know, you caught in the big leagues. Are you using any of the new catching techniques with your guys? Are you one knee down? I wanted to ask because, I mean, you caught at a high level and, and guys weren't doing it as much back then. Are you letting your guys do any of the new stuff? So I, I was uh, – it's funny because when I was catching, I, I was very flexible and I wanted to always put my knee down. Yeah. And they wouldn't let me. <laughs> they, would, they would yell at me, you know. They're like, hey, you can't do – they would call you lazy or something. You put your knee down, oh, that's lazy. You can't do that. And so I was never allowed to do it, and um, and I would do it even though I wouldn't allow it. I mean, there's a lot of times I would go to my knee and, and I would get, catch grief for it. But so now the game's changed, and they're encouraging guys to go to their knee. And so it's like one of those things that's been hard for me to like accept that, you know, because I'm like, man, it's they were so against it ten years ago, and now all of a sudden it's like everyone's got to do it that way. Um, I have allowed my catchers to kind of go with what they're comfortable with. So my starter, John Michael Fail. His first couple of years, he didn't like putting the knee down. And I was more of an old school catcher, so we weren't doing it. Um, and then everyone else started doing it, so he's gotten a little bit more accustomed to doing some it. Some guys don't look My comfortable with it. You know, that's the thing. It's like yeah, finding it what works for each guy. You see some guys try to do it, and it just doesn't look comfortable for them. And then you see guys that do, and they look extremely comfortable. So that's probably finding what's best for you. Yeah, your you got to have some flexibility, especially in your hips, yeah. to really be able to get those knees down and, and be quiet and, and, be, and be low. And uh, so fail our, our starting catcher that's been an all American, like he, he doesn't struggle with the flexibility piece. He just, he just didn't do it early on. And I, I was fine with that. I taught him the old school way and he was a two knee up kind of catcher. Um, then he went off and played in the Cape last summer and, you know, everybody up there was going to the one knee. And so he started doing it a little bit more, kind of liked it, came back here this fall. And we're like, you know, I have two younger catchers on my team, a sophomore and a freshman who are both studs in their own right. And they were, they love going to the one knee and they're doing all the new school, new school stuff where they're starting with their glove on the ground, you know, pre-pitch and then going Ripping up to the ball, in. which is, you know, which I see the value in a hundred percent of the pro level, but I, I don't think it's always great at the college level because, and here's my analysis on that in professional baseball, especially the higher levels of professional baseball, I can start with my glove on the ground and, and, and receive from underneath that ball to keep it in the strike zone because I know that pitcher is going to throw this somewhere within, you know, a six inch area. Like those guys can, yeah, I can catch in the big leagues. I can catch bullpens with my eyes closed, put the glove there and they would throw it in my glove. Yeah. So in college baseball, how many college guys are that accurate that they can throw it where they want? And this, the answer is not many. Well, now, now you're talking about division two college baseball. So we're even like a, you know, maybe a step lower than the power five schools and those things. The, the number of pitchers at this level that can sit there and be that accurate not great. So I have a little bit of an issue with starting the glove on the ground because this pitcher might throw this ball 
three feet over your head. And how are you going to be able to react with one knee down and your glove on the ground to be able to get up there and catch that high pitch really quickly? And plus, you some know, of so the I, young, I, young bucks still need a target at some point too. What they're trying correct. to hammer the ball through—that's part of it too. Is it's okay, but they've got to get a visual. Some of the young guys need a visual of where they're actually trying to get the ball to. Correct, and that's a hundred percent true. They need a visual. They need some consistency with that catcher looking at that target, looking at that mitt. Also, there's another piece to it. The umpires are not great at this level, yeah. right? So you have a catcher starting with his glove on the ground and then trying to you know, trick the umpire by moving this. And the umpires aren't good enough to even be tricked, yeah. you know, a lot of them. And so you're, you're, you're kind of like spending all this time and effort doing something that's maybe probably not going to benefit you that yeah. much. In my, in my experience so far this year from other teams that I saw doing this, because I wasn't letting my guys do the glove on the ground thing. I was letting them go to one knee but just have a low target for the pitcher. The glove on the ground thing, I saw a bunch of guys this year miss balls. Balls go to the backstop, um, a lot of inconsistency with it. And I think it was hurting some kids more than others. There's definitely a value in doing that, but I think it has to be at the higher levels of baseball where pitching is more advanced. Um, but back to the knee thing, I let my guys do it this year. Um, it it's, you know, saves their body a little bit. It gets them a low tar- lower target. We did have very accurate pitchers here this year. We didn't walk many guys. Well, yeah, almost um, a three so, to one strikeout to walk ratio for you guys this year. Which yeah, is phenomenal. For and that's the whole something I—that's something I preach. You know, I would rather have a guy throwing eighty-four with movement that throws a ton of strikes than a guy throwing ninety-four that's behind in every count. That's just how my—that's how I like to play the game. And so, um, you know, my guys come here and know that if they want to pitch for us at North Greenville, they got to throw a lot of strikes. And uh, if you walk a lot of guys, you just aren't going to get as many chances. I can't sit there and allow us to beat ourselves by walking guys. I have to, if I'm going to get beat, it's going to be because the other team beats us. And so I'd rather have guys that fill it up and throw strikes. Hey, you're big on blending your faith with the program. So, I mean, how, how cool is it to be at North Greenville where that's a huge part of the campus life. So just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is, this is a Christ centered school. And so God's very much a part of what's going on here in daily life. Um, you know, I'm a Christian. I have been for years, and it's a big part of my life. It's it's uh, something I'm very proud of. But, you know, baseball in general doesn't always align very much with the gospel or with faith. There's a lot of, you know, like when I played in, in professional baseball, there, there weren't a ton of Christians in the locker room. Um, there weren't a ton of Christians around professional baseball. Um, we would do chapels on Sunday, and there might be five or six guys out of a 25-man roster that would come to chapel. Um, so, coming to North Greenville and trying to align my two worlds of, of, of my two loves baseball and, and, and the gospel and, and, and my relationship with God, it's been perfect in North Greenville because it's a place that I can freely do those things. If I coached at a lot of other schools around the country, I wouldn't be allowed to share my faith. You know, you have to be more politically correct or you have to keep those things to yourself, which I understand. And, um, and I would do those if I was at a, a South Carolina or a Clemson or a big school like that, I would probably have to keep those things to myself more. Um, but uh, fortunately at North Greenville, I'm encouraged to share my faith. It's part of the school. And um, um, I'm not a person that shoves it down their throat. I, 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 uh, I'm not uh, sitting here pr- pretending I'm a, a preacher uh, slash baseball coach. I'm a baseball coach that is flawed and broken and have a lot of my own problems myself. But I'm very honest and open about them. And I'm, I'm not scared to tell people what I believe or uh, what things have impacted or shaped my life. And um, my, my faith encourages me, you know, the Bible and tells me that I need to, you know, be open and share these things. So that's a calling I have as much as I'm called to teach a guy to hit or catch or field. 
or throw strikes or whatever it is, I'm also called by my God to, you know, share his word. And, and I try to do that, but never in an infringing way, never uh, shoving it down someone's throat. But just if that opportunity arises, I, I definitely am, I don't shy away from it. And uh, that's been fun. I mean, we have, we have a lot of Christians on our team here, but we also have a lot of guys that aren't. And some of my favorite players that have played here and they've had great careers here. Don't, don't believe in God. And, and that's okay. Um, that's God gave us all free will. And so those guys get to make their own decisions. But this this school is uh, it's a it's a cool place. Our baseball program has has uh, meshed really well with the, the the biblical principles that our school has, and um, it's a place that I think anyone can fit in. Did you think about signing coming out of high school? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, that's a whole other story. We probably might need a separate podcast. Well, because I know the background, so I mean that's why yeah. I ask. Because obviously, yeah, so you had offered... a ton of hype coming out of high school, and I know that's always the case for guys. Like, there's a lot of different things in play, and that's why I asked. Yeah, so I was. Uh, I did something unique um, at the time. Scott Boris was my agent, yeah. and uh, there was a. They found a rule in the rule book that basically said if you were 18 years of age and you had taken your GED, that you could enter the draft early. Yeah. So I had been held back when I was a kid, when I was young. Um, it was actually in seventh, so in seventh grade, I, I repeated seventh grade because I was a really good football player. And a lot of the high school coaches were convincing my dad that he needed to hold me back for college football because um, I was going to have a chance to be a, a college quarterback. And at that time, they were saying if you hold somebody back, they can graduate in December, they can go straight to that college and have a spring practice to prepare for the fall. Gray shirt. So my dad made – It's called a gray yeah, shirt. Gray, yeah, so this was back before they had a name for it, right? So, um, um, this, you know, so my dad actually held me back in seventh grade for football. Um, fast forward, I get to high school, and I ended up being a better baseball player than football player, and had I had bigger. I had opportunities to play college football and baseball, but I had better opportunities in baseball. So I chose, and 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 think what kind of catapulted that is. I made the USA team when I was in high school for baseball, and that kind of elevated my baseball. Um, uh, as far as recruitment stuff is. So I, I chose baseball. Well, I got to my junior high school. We won the state championship and it was 13 seniors and me on the varsity team. So there was like, you know, I was going to be the only returning player. And I, and I was, I was probably our best player the year before. I mean, I, I think I was like the team MVP and made all state and stuff as a junior. So Boris is sitting there telling my parents like, Hey, there's no benefit to him going back to high school. Like, he's not going to benefit from being, you know, him and the whole JV team playing together. Um, they're just going to walk him every time and you know, not pitch to him. So Boris was trying to convince me to either transfer to like an IMG Academy or, or do something different. And he found this rule that talked about the GED. Well, it fit for me because I'd been held back in seventh grade. So I was, I had just turned 18. So I could, I, I was old enough. So he's like, well, why don't he go take the GED and get his GED? And then therefore he could just enter the draft as a junior. So I did that. Um, I, I went and took my GED, um, you know, did good on it. So I had my, my high school diploma in a way. And so uh, Boris submitted the paperwork to Sandy Alderson, who was, the, the, I guess, the assistant president or vice president of baseball at that time. Um, and they granted me um, draft status as a junior in high school. So I was like the first person that they'd ever done that for. Um, and – this is where it went sideways. So rather than just entering the draft, which I think I, at that time I was rate, rated like the number two player in the country in my class as a, as a junior. So I probably would have been a high draft pick that year, but rather than just 
put me in the draft and let me go through that selection process normally and being drafted, um, when when baseball responded to Boris that hey, okay, he's cleared to be drafted as a junior, they Boris is like, okay, well you know, will you notify all the teams? And and Major League Baseball is like, no, that's not our responsibility to notify the teams. It's your responsibility. And that's when it was like a light bulb moment for Boris. He was like, okay, wait a second. So baseball is not going to tell any team that he's eligible for the draft. Then no one's going to know he's eligible. They're not going to draft him. Yep. He's going to go through the draft undrafted. Well, what happens if you go through the draft undrafted? You become a free agent. Yeah. So Boris is like, wait a second. We can turn him into a free agent as a junior in high school and allow him to sign with any team out there for whatever amount of money. And that's the decision that Boris and my parents made. I was a 18 year old kid, not really involved in the decision-making process at that time. And um, so they made that decision to, Hey, we're just not going to tell the teams and we'll go through the draft without anybody knowing it. And then we'll be a free agent. We'll hold workouts and you can just sign with whoever. And, and baseball at the end of the day, long story short, baseball did not like that. Yeah. That did not go well. Yeah. It was not what the rule was intended for. <laughs> and you know, it, it, so I was offered two different contracts by two different teams. I won't name the teams and all that stuff, but two very well-known teams. And they offered the first team offered me a contract I accepted. Um, and it was for a very large amount of money, first round type money. I accepted the contract. And then, you know, a couple days later, um, when the paperwork was ready to be processed, that team repealed yep. the offer and retracted it, I guess. And, and they used the claim that they were getting outside pressure. I don't know what, you know, we don't, to this day, we don't know what that is. We have some assumptions, but, um, and so then I held another workout. The second team offered me a comparable amount to sign. I, I accepted that amount. And within 24 hours, that team called and retracted the offer and said they were getting outside pressure. So I did try to sign long story short. I did yeah. try to sign out of high school. Um, I was in some ways, um, I guess I was uh, kept from doing that. Um, and then they changed the rule and they, they made that rule different now. And so like Jeremy Bonnerman went and did the same thing. And then Bryce Harper went and did the same thing. But every time that the rule had been changed where if you go through that process, you have to notify the teams and baseball also notifies the team. So no one else can go through the draft undrafted like I did. That was where it went sideways. So, um, all that to be said, I ended up deciding when that process is being done, rather than go back to high school as a senior and not get pitched to, or rather than hold out and just go around to all the major league teams and work out and then eventually just sign with somebody, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm getting away from all this. I decided I'm going to be a man and make my own decision and kind of separate myself from all this. I'm going to South Carolina to play for Coach Tanner. And, um, and that was the best decision I ever made. And, to think that I almost signed out of high school as a, as a junior, I ended up going to South Carolina and playing four years. And like, by the time I left South Carolina, I had played the most games of any Gamecock ever. Yeah. It's funny how the world works out. You know, it didn't go that the way that we originally thought, but uh, it's a, it's a cool story and it's, it's a long story, but uh, it definitely helped shape my baseball career. Is that your fail forward moment? I ask everybody that. So something that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now is one of the best things that happened to you. Is that, is that your fail forward moment? I would say so. I would say so. That that definitely is a, a big moment. So, you know, I think sometimes, man, what if I, what if the, the team would have been, you know, what if that contract would have gone through and I did sign the papers and I went off and started playing pro ball as a 18 year old kid, you know, what, how would my life be different? I, I wouldn't have met my wife. Yep. 
in college. I wouldn't have had that college experience. I wouldn't have a college degree probably. You know, I, I probably would still be married, but I would have a different wife, different kids. I'd probably be living in a whole different city. I definitely wouldn't be at North Greenville University. I promise you that. You know, my connection to Greenville was my wife. That's the only reason I ever ended up in this city. And um, so, yeah, it, it would have been a, a fork in the road that would have led me on a totally different path. So um, it's hard for me to think that I would have ever wanted a different path. I, I'm, I'm exactly where I want to be, and I'm happy with where I've ended up. And uh, so I'm actually grateful that I did fail forward, as you said. Did you, was that on your own to get your master's? Because I saw you have your master's. Is that something you wanted to do on your own or somebody say, hey, this is probably good to get your master's? Um, no. Uh, so I, I didn't really want to do it. It was kind of <laughs> one of those things where it was presented to me. So when I was first getting out of playing in the big leagues, getting into college coaching, I, I talked to Coach Tanner and I, he was giving me advice. Like, okay, well, if you want to be a head coach at the Division One level or college coaching, you know, most head coaches have master's. He goes, but you played in the big leagues, and that's kind of a equivalency of a master's. So a lot of guys that played in the big leagues don't have to go get their master's. So I had kind of made the decision, well, okay, well, I don't want to go back to school and do that. I'll just, you know, I, I hopefully can get the jobs I want because I'm a former major league player. Well, I got here to North Greenville, and, you know, budgets were bad. I, I wasn't making much money, which is fine. I didn't take the job for the money. Um, but, you know, I was not paid very well. And after our first couple of years of success, North Greenville wanted to reward me by giving me something, but they, they didn't have the budget in place to really give me like a big pay raise. So they came to me after my second year, I think, and they were like, hey, what if we, you can get your master's for free? Like, we'll pay for it. You can get your master's. You don't have to put, you know, it's, there's no cost. And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it went. It was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess I will. So I, I got my master's, I think it was my third year coaching. Um, and it was just, you know, just to have, and I, it was a lot of work and time, but, um, I'm glad I did it at the end of the day and I have that diploma now. And, um, so that's how it ended up happening. That was the best thing I ever did too, was, was get mine for, for experience, but also at the end, you salary wise, you're going to get a, you're yeah. gonna get a little better, especially at different schools. Division one is now completely different. Like it doesn't matter anymore, really division one, but you know, Division Two, NAI, Division Three, like you're going to make more money at the end of it if you have if you have your masters. Yeah, I mean, here are the masters programs of you know a twenty thousand dollar program. So if you wanted to pay to get it, it's a twenty thousand dollar deal. So for them to offer me to get it for free, yep. you know, it was it was hard to turn down. You know, do you want to talk about donors on the diamond charity a little bit? I mean, obviously it's it's family, and I think it's a great story. So if, if you want to talk about it, just for, I, I'm sure there's not a lot of people that know about it. So just so we can bring some education to, to Donors on the Diamond. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Donors on Diamond is a charity that we started, uh, my wife and I started back in 2009, I want to say. Um, so I, I was in South Carolina. I had gotten injured that year. I tore some cartilage in my knee. Um, late in the season in AAA with the Oakland A's in Sacramento, California. So I had to come home, have surgery, ended my season. Uh, I was supposed to get a September call that year and that prevented me from doing that. So while home, I was rehabbing, training, working out, getting ready for the next spring training. I got very sick. And um, one day in workouts, I collapsed. I went into convulsions and had to be rushed to the hospital. And I, I was admitted to the hospital. I stayed there for about a week. Um, they didn't know exactly what was going on with me. They found out I was in liver failure. My liver was failing and I was um, having issues with that, which was strange because I don't drink. I don't party. I wasn't into drugs. Like I'm not a guy that you would ever think would have liver issues. 
Um, after doing a biopsy, they found out I had a, a, a disease called autoimmune hepatitis. It's an autoimmune disease where my immune system tries to kill my liver every day, it just attacks my liver cells. And um, we don't know why. Um, it's not curable. It's a chronic disease. So I'll have it the rest of my life. I have to take medicine every day to kind of control my liver, control my immune system, and try to prevent them from attacking from my immune system and attacking my liver. Also reduces the inflammation in my liver so I can sustain. Anyway, all that um, kind of led to the fact that I'll probably need a liver transplant at some time. So I started looking into transplantation and those kind of things. And I realized by doing my own research how how much need there are for organ and tissue transplants nationwide. You know, um, in our country, um, a, a new person is added to the organ donor waiter list every 10 minutes. All right. So every 10 minutes, another person is being added on that list. That's like waiting a life saving, saving transplant. And there are not enough do donors out there. There's not enough, you know, so people are dying every day. And, uh, and that was something that I, when I saw it, I realized, you know, now I can relate with it because I'm going to be one of those people at some point, like I'm going to need a liver transplant. And, and so it made me realize like, I need to make a difference. I need to get involved with this. Um, and in the state of South Carolina, the, the, the charity that runs organ donation is called Donate Life. And in South Carolina specifically, it's called Donate Life South Carolina or Donate Life SC. So when you go to the drivers, uh, to the DMV to get a driver's license, they ask you if you want to be an organ donor usually. And you say yes or no. And they put a circle with a heart on it on your driver's license. That's pretty much nationwide that does that. But that's the only opportunity really in South Carolina that people get to, to decide if they're a donor. Yeah. There's not like, you know, there's there's marches for, for breast cancer, women's breast, you know, um, there's um, pediatric uh, cancer charities all over. There's all kinds of charities supporting different illnesses and different needs in the medical world. But there wasn't really anything for organ and tissue donation, which saves a ton of lives. One organ donor can save up to 11 lives um, because of the different things. So um, I decided that my wife and I wanted to get involved and try to make a small difference. And we started to think on donors on the diamond, basically just a big party out on the baseball field, brought in guest speakers and uh, coaches and former major league players and did a silent auction and all the proceeds and everything from that event would go to donate life South Carolina and help them raise more awareness for organ and tissue donation. And, um, so after we did the, that charity for several years, I mean, what's crazy is that my wife and I had twin daughters and one of our daughters named Izzy, um, was born with her, her own illness. Uh, and it was something that was life threatening. It ended up taking her life when she was five months old. And so Izzy was an organ donor. And so when she passed away, um, her organs and tissue were donated and helped save the lives of some other babies. And, um, you know, so that whole thing kind of came full circle for us and, and we got to not only be a per, you know help start a charity but also see you know people that benefited um, from our own daughter who passed away and um but that's a need nationwide i mean I, anybody that listens to this i mean if you're not an organ donor i would i would highly suggest you you look into it and research it and, and decide if that's something that you think you could do to make an impact and you know all of our life here on earth it's all temporary and you know none of us are going to last forever and i think it's it's kind of a, a an honorable thing that when you do pass away and go on to the whatever you believe is your next life uh, that, that you could help somebody as you're on your way out, you know, make a difference in some family's life on your way out. And uh, I can speak from experience. It's a big deal. Yeah. I'm an organ donor. I've been since I've had my license, my daughter has an autoimmune disorder. It's not as extreme, but it attacks her optic nerve. So uh, luckily her medication has calmed it down. She takes cell So that's the autoimmune 
uh, immunosuppressor that she takes, but it's actually helped. She lost field vision in her left eye when we were in Illinois still and didn't know until we moved out here. And she, she sees one of the best neurologists in the country at Wake Forest University. So it was just a blessing that we actually moved out here to North Carolina because the doctors here are much better than the ones we had in Illinois. So it is, does hit home for me on that. Yeah, and, and, you know, um, organ, tissue, and eye donation. That, so that's all under the same umbrella. So a lot of people don't realize that, but eyes can also be you know, donated and save a life or help someone else uh, gain vision that they don't. So um, it's, a, it's a weird charity to talk about because it's, you're talking about a tragedy for one family can also be a life-saving thing for another family. But it's, it's hard for that family that's dealing with tragedy that, you know, to, to really feel any kind of joy that, that their, their husband or child or family member has now passed away, but that organ donation does make a huge difference for someone else. So it's a, it's a hard charity to raise awareness for because it's, it's uh, you're dealing with tough issues. Those are tough conversations um, to have. For sure. For sure. So. Good. How else are you? I mean, how are you balancing the rest of your family with the program? I mean, there's a lot of time away, but. Yeah, it's, it's been good. You know, um, that's one of the things I do value about the business level is that um, there's a, you know, um, there's a little bit more free time at this level probably because um, you, you, the recruiting rat race is maybe not as competitive at this level or not as, I wouldn't say competitive. It's definitely competitive. It's just not as, I'm, I'm not having to go sit, you know, at a showcase in Atlanta for nine straight days. Um, you know, it's my recruiting style is a little different and uh, we've been able to have success with what we're doing. Um, it, 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 this, this level provides a little bit more quality of life. Um, and so I've valued that. Um, one thing at North Greenville that's unique about our school here is that we don't play on Sundays being a Christian school. So, um, we have every Sunday off. We don't do anything. Don't come to the field. Don't nothing. So I've really loved that because it allows me to go to church with my family. It allows me to co coach my son's travel baseball team and a lot, you know, there's a lot of free time I get to spend with my family on Sundays that other coaches aren't doing. You know, at most programs, um, they have Mondays off. They, they play on Sundays. They have Mondays off. You know, and so coaches on Mondays are still going into the office. It's a scramble Kids still. are still going to class. It's still a scramble. So, it's not really a day off. Yeah, exactly. So that's a benefit I think we have here is that we truly get a day off, like away from the game. We don't go to class. We don't go to the weight room. We're not coming to campus. Like, it, it's a it's a refresher. Um, and the other thing, like, it does a lot of that family time. Whereas, you know, if you're at a, another school that has Mondays off, that doesn't benefit you with family time because your kids are going to school, your wife's going to work, so you're not really seeing them. Um, so I, I, I really value that here at North Greenville that we have Sundays off. That's something I've been grateful for. Yeah. What are some final thoughts or maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, nah, you did good. Um, it's been a good conversation. I, I hope I didn't talk too much, but uh, it's been, you know, I'm proud of what we've done at North Greenville. I appreciate the the uh, acknowledgement of our program and, and you having me on and you know, winning the, the National Coach of the Year is very cool, but I want people to know, um, although the trophy may have my name on it, this is a, a staff award, in my opinion. When, I, when I'm thinking about this award and, and, and uh, getting the National Coach of the Year, to me, it's the National Coaching Staff of the Year. And I'm really grateful for my assistants and all the time and effort they put into this program as well. I couldn't have done this without any of them. So um, if they send me a plaque or an award or something, I'm going to take my saw and cut it in six pieces and give each coach, each coach a piece. So I hope ABCA doesn't get upset about that, but, uh, once it's um, yours, but, it's uh, yours. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm grateful for it, but it's obviously, this is a, this is a, it takes a village, you know, and, uh, 
my coaching staff has been tremendous and they've had my back and we've done a lot of work together to, to build this program to what it is. So uh, I'm proud of all their efforts as well. Thanks for your time, Landon. Yeah, man. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. I love how Coach Piles turned the North Greenville program around by bringing winning players and coaches on board. Winners win and building a winning culture starts with people first. He's one of the many new generation of coaches we have that are player first driven. Congrats again to the North Greenville players and staff on their first national championship. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, Jim Richardson, and Matt West in the ABC office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter and TikTok at coachb underscore abca, Instagram, ryanbrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABC app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Set me free. You set me free.